0: Good morning. Wow. I've got loads of time. It's, it's, uh, wow, that's it's a miracle in itself. It's, uh, well, good morning. Well, whether you are a regular here or uh, you happen to be a guest. And um, before just sharing what I'm going to share, well, I wanted to ask you a question. And uh, my question was if you read the Bible, it's fine if you don't. What is your favourite book? Maybe in kind of ones and twos, just quickly turn and say, what's your favourite book of the Bible and why? Right, let me uh, just d- draw you back. So <laughs> I got some time. We're not that much time, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and I don't know what book you 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 came up with. Um, you know, maybe it's one of the the Gospels. Maybe it's um, one of the books from the Old Testament that you might have been looking at. But I'd be surprised if he um, chose what we call the book of Song of Songs, sometimes called the Song of Solomon. Did anybody choose it as their favourite one? I wasn't expecting that. It's not normally the one that kind of people jump up and go, this is my favourite book. Um, if you haven't read it before, I'd encourage you to read it. I'm going to be talking about it today. I'm going to be talking about it next week but for certain obvious reasons it's not normally the one that everybody gets really excited about but I wanted to share about this uh Nigel about a year ago just said is there anything we want you know to share in church anything we feel like God's laid on our heart and we knew at that time we were going to be doing the year of biblical literacy and I said we've got to do the songs of songs and um and he, that kind of gave a well, that's interesting because it's not normally one that gets, gets taught on. And uh, I felt it's important for a few reasons. If you remember when we started the year of biblical literacy and we were starting in January, actually in December and January, and we we're talking about some of the reasons why we were doing it. And one of the verses we, we talked about is this one. This idea that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training to bring us into righteousness, to bring us more like Jesus. And so I I really believe that verse. And so that means all scripture. And so that includes the book of the Songs of Solomon, Songs of Songs. And so that's partly the reason we want to do it. We didn't want to just talk about all scripture. We didn't want to just pick out those easy um, bits in Bible that are easier to interpret, to understand. We wanted to say, let's go for some of the difficult stuff. Which, if you've been around the last few weeks, you know, we've been looking at uh, sex, violence, uh, judgment, if I remember them, you know, tackling some of the more difficult issues, some of the more difficult um, conversations. I was just listening, I was away when Nigel did the talk on sex, uh, and he picked up a, a passage of scripture and um, talking about this person called Judah and Tamar, a very difficult passage but he tackled it because it's important. And the other reason I remember showing on this, oh, yeah, it's just about, you can just see it. Just to get you hungry. You know, we talk about having a a balanced diet, don't you? Uh, I wish my kids sometimes grasped it. But, you know, just to kind of uh, get your proteins, your carbohydrates, make sure you have some fruit, make sure you, you have some veg. And I don't know about you, there's certain things I find easier to eat. Actually, just thinking about it it makes me salivate as I just think of a a roast lunch. And there's certain things that I find a little bit harder to to eat. As I got older, I think I've got less fussy. But we want to have a balanced diet. As followers of Jesus, we want to have a balanced diet. There's certain things that we find easier to to eat. A good example would be the Gospels. But there are certain books of the Bible that we sometimes find harder to, to read. If you read something like uh, Leviticus or Deuteronomy, um, Daniel or Revelation, some parts of that, sometimes people find that more difficult because you have to think about it a little bit easier. The meaning is not always so clear. And so this morning, I want to encourage you to eat your fruit and your veg. Or maybe look at it as a piece of steak that you just need to chew a little bit more over. And so we're going to be looking at the book of the... Songs of songs. And um, I chose it deliberately because I wanted to challenge myself. Uh, And I wanted to press into this myself. You know, it's a book that definitely wasn't on on top of my list. It was pretty much my least favourite book of the Bible for years. I just found it really hard to relate to. Just this idea, if you read it, there's a lot about love and, and kisses and there's a lot of kind of things that can be uh, interpreted in quite sexual ways. Uh, wait till next week. And um, it's, because then you get, later, later you go on in the book, uh, more detailed it gets. And I just couldn't, you know, as a, as a teenager reading the Bible, I just couldn't relate to that. In my, my family, we're, we're not really hugs and kisses. Um... It's just as we got older, as, you know, into my later years that, you know, even my mum would, would give a hug. But we, that wasn't, I wasn't kind of used to it. So when I read this language, I just found it really hard. When I married Katie and her family, I mean, they're just the total opposite. And uh, they're very much into hugs and, 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 and kisses. And I just, I found it really awkward. Also where I was on my kind of spiritual journey, I was brought up in a church, um, a Bible-believing church. But a lot of the emphasis um, wasn't on kind of passages like this. It wasn't like they were against it, but they just didn't teach about it. The whole idea of kind of choosing to follow Jesus, taking up your cross. uh, uh, Great passages from the Bible. And so I was kind of very much at this idea of just serving God. I started following Jesus as a a very young child and I could just perceive him as my my friend. uh, Maybe as a, a good father. But this idea as a, as a lover, which we find in the songs of songs, ad, I, just, I just found that hard. Maybe you guys just really find that book really easy. But that was some of my uh, struggles, some of the stuff that God took my journey on. I began to encounter this um, when I was a student. Uh, for some reason, I studied business, but I used to st- st- sit in the part of the library, which was where they had kind of the religious studies, religious education, whatever you call it now. And so sometimes in my break, I will just go and read books. And they seem to have two major book sections. One was on revival. And I love that bit. Uh, but another was just what they call Christian mystics. Uh, some of these names won't be familiar to you. Some of them might be, depending on your background. Julian and Norwich, Madame Guignon, Bernard de Claiborne, and more recently people like Thomas Kelly. These were people, as I read their books, they were using their language when they talked about approaching God That just seemed strange to me. They talked about it in such depths of intimacy, such depths of love. I wasn't familiar with that. It just seemed to be, it's like, are we talking about the same person? We are talking about God. But the way that you relate and you connect to God and the language that you would use, I wouldn't use that. And so that got me thinking. And God began to do a a work in my life in 1994, God took my life apart. I've shared about this before in church where God just made me realise just that my heart was too small. That I talked about love, but I didn't really understand the love of the Father, the love of God. And it just broke me. You know, literally broke me. For days on end, I was just shaking in God's presence. Again, you might... Sound a bit strange to you, but God was just taking apart my life and saying to me, Paul, you need to pursue me in an intimate, loving relationship." And since then, I kind of ebbed and flirted. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes in my journey with Jesus, sometimes it feels like I'm just up there in times, it just feels like, and down there. And so I kind of came back to this subject, this issue. Again, about a year ago, I was on holiday. And I try to do what I recommend people to do. Sometimes with the discipleship year people, I just challenge them to push themselves. Try to do something that you wouldn't normally do. Try to read something you you wouldn't normally read. I think I shared that before. People often just read the things that kind of, if they're into prayer, they just read books on prayer. If they're into this, they just read books on that. And so I just thought, it's been a while since I read what they'd call commentary. Which is like a book that goes into real depth about a book. And there was just this book, this one The Songs of Songs by Charlie Cleverly. And I thought, let's just go for that for a holiday read. <laughs> if some of you are going on holiday, you can get it as well. And I thought, I just want to push myself. I want to, all scriptures used for, I need to get a balanced diet. And so I began to press into this and it began to challenge me. Um, it began to encourage me. It began to paint for me again this picture, of something that maybe I had drifted from in the last few years. And so that's why when I just said, who wants, you know, what do we want to talk on? I said, we got to speak on this, on the songs of songs. If you don't know where it is, it's pretty much in the middle of the Bible, not exactly. If you blink, you'd literally miss it. You know, generally it's kind of like four or five pages depending on the the size font of your Bible. It's just 117 verses. And though it's not spoken much in church, I've been going to church for 47 years. I don't think I've ever heard a whole sermon on the Song of Solomon, maybe referred to. The early church fathers talked about it a lot. A lot of the people who really uh, moved and influenced church history talked about it a lot. Just referring to one person, um, regarded as the greatest preacher there ever was, a guy called Charles Spurgeon. And and he said this, he actually did 52 sermons on it. And so when something like that starts to do a whole load of sermons on it, it kind of catches my attention as somebody who's trying to preach and trying to encourage stuff. And so he says this, did I get the whole quote? Yeah. The song occupies a sacred enclosure into which none may enter unprepared. Put off thy shoes of thy feet, for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. The historical books I may compare to the outer courts of the temple. The Gospels, the epistles, that's the letters that people like Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, and the Psalms bring us into the holy place or the court of the priests, where the songs of Solomon. Or otherwise the songs of songs, is the most holy place. The holy of holies before which the veil still hangs to many untaught believer. That challenged me. The song is a golden casket of which love is the key rather than the learning. And so when I saw that, I was like, wow, have I missed something here? Why haven't we taught on the... the songs are songs. If this is the Holy of Holies, so let's just pray. It talks there about putting off your shoes. I'm taking my shoes off, but I normally do. But let's just prepare our hearts. If he's right, if he's even got a little bit of rightness, what Charles Spurgeon said, we're, we're entering into a Holy of Holies moment. So I'm just going to pray. Wow, God, that invitation to go into the Holy of Holies. And Lord, we want to take our shoes off our feet, God, whatever that means for us. We want our hearts to be ready. We want our hearts to be wooed. We want our hearts to be transformed. Lord, we don't want to just talk about love, but we want to experience your love. Lord, bring us into that intimate place. Wherever we are on our journey, God, wherever that looks like, Lord, at this point in time, Lord, whether you feel like you're really close, where it feels like you're really distant, God, we want to go after you today. God, we must meet you today. God, we must encounter you today. God, we must be changed by you today. Lord, increase our hunger and our desire to see you today. Amen. So, before kind of going into the the depth for it, when I heard things like Spurgeon and all these other people talking about how important, how crucial this was, it got me thinking: like, why? Can you just click it on? not clicking. That's fine. And um, and I think there's various reasons why it was important. Uh, if you remember again, my apologies for those who haven't been around for a few weeks or you're just a guest, but we've been working through the Bible, starting right from the, the beginning. And right to the beginning, we talked about relationship, the intimacy that Adam and Eve had in the garden of Eden, the intimacy that they had with God, the intimacy they had with the land that they had been given, the actual garden of Eden. But ever since that point in time, there'd been separation, there'd been alienation, there'd been the breaking of that relationship. And the rest of the Bible talks about trying to make that reconnection. You see this through the Old and the New Testament. You see it so often in the lives of those who have sought and pursued God. This desire to reconnect with God, to become who we were made to be, to enter into the intimacy that we were called to be. St. Augustine, an early church father, wrote a book called The Confession. It's not an easy book to write. But he started with this famous phrase, Our hearts are restless until they find thy rest indeed. Our hearts are restless. They sink in us that desire something, purpose and meaning. And until we enter that place, we will never ultimately find rest. And this is what Songs of Solomon is all about. Is that kind of pursuit, this restlessness. As you read the songs of songs, you see this restlessness of this bride who's restless because she wants to encounter her bridegroom. She wants to encounter a lover and only there will she find fulfillment. Only there will she find rest. And so it's important, but like I say, it's often not talked about. I think partly as we start going into it this week and particularly next week, there is a lot of sexual language that's used. But it's used to describe an intimate connection with God. And we will journey on this. I will seek to try to take you on this journey because I think it's it's important because connection is important. Relationship is important. Following Jesus was meant to be more than just a kind of of put your hand up or make some type of whatever response it was when we chose to follow Jesus. It's a journey. It's an intimate thing. It's approaching God. I'm also just going to share in it because the Bible contains lots of other passages. Though it's really maybe focused in in this book, There's lots of passages in the Bible that talk about the love of God described as being like that of a bride and the bridegroom. And it's hard to avoid this metaphor. And so we want to dig into that this morning and next week. Uh, There's a prophet called Hosea and you get that later on if you wake up your way for the year of biblical literacy. I think some of you might just be about there at this point in time. And it describes this relationship of Israel and and God in the same illustration as a bride and a bridegroom. And it talks about God just pursuing. You know, again, it uses sexual language of God alluring her, leading her into the wilderness where she will respond to his love. Isaiah uses the same language. And then Paul comes and uses the language as well. I was expecting that, ah, that's me me if you don't recognize me. That's my wife, Katie. Oh, I thought I was going to get like, oh, oh, didn't he look so young? I think, right, that was a failure. <laughs> Just from my wife. But uh, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, and that's why it's so hard in some ways teaching on on this subject this morning because it is a a bit of a mystery but I'm talking about Christ and the church and so again that's what we want to press into it because our passage is like that what what does that mean what does that look like is it just like a a nice little concept a nice little illustration or is there something that we can learn from that depth of intimacy and love and passion that there should be in a marriage uh, from this separation and we see it finally in Revelation when John describes the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, prepared as a, as a bride for Christ. And so this language is there. And so this was part of the reason why the early church gave it such preeminence and attention. And my challenge to myself and to each one of us is maybe we should do the same. It's hard, it's a difficult book, but let's go for it. So let's start at the beginning. I think I'll read it straight off though, wrapped in my neck in. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Friends, you'll find a lot of the passage you read it's going kind to of the she, the friends, the she. That's normally the main characters in this play. Think of it a bit like Shakespeare uh, when they have the different players. Friends, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. She goes again. How right they are to adore you. Dark I am, yet lovely. Daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kendah, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I'm dark, because I'm darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards. My own vineyard I had to neglect. So it starts off, wow, bang there. So there's a kind of young kind of boy who's like, "Ooh, kiss his mouth. Let's forget this. Let's just jump this chapter. I'll come back to that one. But it starts off, let him kiss me with a kiss of his mouth. You know, it's immediately... Demanding, immediately intense, immediately there's vulnerability and trust. Because when you kiss somebody, you have to do that. When you kiss somebody, it's not done lightly, hopefully. It's bold, it's risky. When you kiss somebody, it's an invitation saying, I want to know you better. And this is what it's talking about. And this passage. The songs of Songs, we are the she, we are the pride. You could argue that the rest of the Songs of Song is now working of this first step of faith. This first step of saying, Kiss me, kiss me, God, encounter me. It's in our hearts. As I've been reading, it, it's God, put that again in, in me, kiss me, take me away. Now, we should not think of kissing Jesus in a sexual way. It's more, again, kind of keeping this idea of a a metaphor. Some would think of Christ as the very kiss of the Father to the world. Again, going back to C.H. Spurgeon, because he seemed to say quite a lot about it. He says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips, for his love is better than wine. No, you say. That is too familiar for me. Then I fear you do not love him, for love is always familiar. Faith may stand at a distance, for a lucky saving. But love comes near, for she must kiss, she must embrace. Why, beloved, sometimes the Christian so loves his Lord, that language becomes unmeaning to the ears of others who have never been in this state. And so I'd encourage you, I know as I'm sharing on this with some of you, some of you might be "Oh, this is weird, or this is hard. But again, one of the reasons I wanted to press into this, you know, this is a journey I'm on, is as I read things like that, I was like, yeah, he's right. If I say I love God, if I say I'm intimate with God, what does that look like? What does kisses look like? Just even taking that basic aspect. Am I familiar with God? Do I sometimes stand at a distance or do I go forward and embrace? That's a challenge for each one of us. Sometimes it can be a period of time. We might feel like we're at a distance. For some of you, you might have been just started coming recently, visiting this church, and you're just kind of standing on the fringes. It's like you're looking in at a distance. And my encouragement to you today is come in. He's inviting us. He wants to be encountered. Do we want to encounter him? Crumbs is very quiet here today. Wow. Well, even though you might not be vocalizing, my prayer is in my heart, in our hearts, be like, yes, yes. Because as we step out, we realize that he's better than wine. Again, I find that hard as a child because I didn't like alcohol. And uh, it's like, this they said it better than Coca-Cola, then that would make way more sense to me. And, um, but it's better than any other things that you would pour your affections on. Oh, God, make my heart like that. God, may our hearts of our church be like that. That would be a characteristic of Winchester Vineyard. That we kiss him with our kisses, that he is better than wine that we're pleased with his fragrance. You know, when we talk about fragrance, it's a reflection of the person. You know, so I, I just, and I, you know, I'm married to Katie, and so I kind of know the way that she smells. Uh, I've shown one of these, like, scratch and see, no. and uh, <laughs> But uh, because there is an aspect, and the kids every year, she asks for Florentine, Florentina, from Marks and Spencers. And um, so it's a distinct smell, but it's a distinct... Somebody else could wear Florentina, but it's like Florentina with Katie added. It's something very unique, something very familiar. And I know for some of you, this would go over your head. Some of you would be more aware of what I'm talking about. But sometimes just, you, you know somebody. As soon as I'm walking past somebody and I just think, "Oh, you wear the same perfume as my mother-in-law. You know, because she has quite a strong perfume. Uh, you know, and you just, it's, but that's what it means. It's like that familiarity, you kind of associate somebody with that. But you kind of got to get, re- generally, you got to get reasonably close, unless they just put on too much cologne or too much perfume, whatever. And it's like, everybody knows, you know, as soon as you catch a plane, and it's like, oh, man, I need a gas mask. Uh, and I fly sometimes. And um, But normally, it's something that you only get when you're close, you're intimate. It's like, oh, do we smell? It's like, God, let me... You know, let me get so close that I can smell you. And again, my prayers is actually switching this. Some of you are like yeah, but hopefully it's stirring something in hearts. It's like yeah, this is what we this is what we want. This is the journey that we want to go on. Then it says, take me away, hurry, take me away. And again, I've been using some as I share some of these. Words for some of you, you're there already. For some of you, you're like, oh my goodness, we've got another week of this. For some of you, you're like, it brings back memories maybe where you were once. For some of you, this is kind of keenly kind sink of your oh, heart. It's like, think I want. But wherever you are, I'd use these verses. think I've been doing, because I felt like I've drifted from this maybe in the last few years. But over the last few weeks, now I'm going to be speaking on this. I've just been using these words and repeating them. And so I've been using words like that. God, kiss me. And sometimes it feels a bit artificial, but sometimes you have to do something artificial until it becomes a reality in your heart. And I've been using phrases like this. So if you want to know a practical takeaway for this talk, the first one is just begin to repeat this. God, kiss me. God, take me away. Whatever that means, Lord. Whatever is distracting me and I'm bogged down to this, God, take me away. And God, hurry. Help me. I want to meet you. I want to encounter you yeah and just just respond in your heart that's where you're at just respond in your heart Uh, yeah yeah god do that and then we come to uh an interesting bit of passage where he talks about you know i'm dark and he uses that phrase uh, uh a few times Now, it helps to kind of understand the culture and where where you're in. And uh, so I used to live for a number of years, some of you know, I lived in uh, Lebanon and um, uh, Egypt. And I've always found it fascinating living in different countries, how people perceive color. So if you live in the West, everybody wants to get darker generally. You kind of like, you pay money to just go and get, you know, sometimes, you know, um, what do you call them, tanning saloons, whatever. People are trying to get darker because the idea is it's like look, they think if you look darker, you look more glamorous. There's also the idea, it kind of goes back when only those who were generally um, darker, it's because they had free time and therefore you had more wealth to kind of reflect things. Well, the opposite in a lot of countries I go to because they're trying to get whiter. <laughs> which you'll find really bizarre when you see the different adverts. And um, because the whole idea in countries like Egypt is generally, you tend to be darker because you're working in the fields, you're underneath the sun all the time. And those who have wealth, those who have prestige, they can pay for other people to do the dirty work out there. And so they're less likely to get burnt, they're less likely to get tanned. And so when she says, I'm dark, it's not so much like a literal skin color theme. It's this idea she's saying, I am unworthy, I'm not sufficient. You're this amazing person. You are, often, the, 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 the bridegroom is also described as like in a, a kingly kind of perspective. It's like, you're this class. And again, it's hard maybe to understand because we, uh, we live more in a classless society. It's still there, but not what it looks like, you know, like a few hundred years ago, if you watch films like Pride and Prejudice where you really see the class system. And uh, and so she's saying, you know, I am unworthy. I'm not sufficient. Don't look at me. Shame. Inadequate. This idea that somehow our self-image is flawed. And again, maybe that applies to some of you. Maybe some of you are thinking about that in your heads this morning. I'm talking about pressing into God. I'm talking about this idea: "Kiss me with your kisses, take me away." Uh, and you're just thinking, "I'm not worthy. I'm not sufficient." Particularly, maybe if you compare, you know, there's a great evil in the Christian world where we compare ourselves with other people, and we go, "Well, they are maybe worthy," and we just go, "I got shame. I can't do that." But this is what this very passage is written for, because we've come to a bit. In a few minutes what the bridegroom's response to that. And then she said, you know, she's neglected her own vineyard. She's neglected her own vineyard. Her own vineyard that she should have been taking care of, which is kind of, the vineyard can represent various things, but generally uh, people believe it's to do with kind of your inner soul, who you are, what you're about. And she's saying, I've neglected it. And so you kind of get this whole thing, you know, I'm worthy, I'm not sufficient, don't look at me, there's shame, there's disappointment, there's a sense of failure, there's a sense of, look, I've just neglected this, I'm not, I'm not worthy. But in my heart, I say I want to pursue you, in my heart, deep down, something says I want more of you. But at the same time, I have this kind of counterfeit in me that says I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I can't approach you. And this is what it's touching about, you know, this is, this is real, this is emotions, this is powerful, this is truth. And then you get this bit where you get the response. I don't have it up there, but kind of verse 15. The bridegroom says, you know, how beautiful, most beautiful of all women. And then he repeats it. Because I think, you know, so often we need to hear it repeated, don't we? Maybe it's just me (laughs) trying to see any reaction on it. Maybe I just need to hear that. And again, I find it a little bit difficult because I don't tend to think of myself as beautiful or not beautiful. But I know what he's trying to say is like saying, Paul, you're lovely. Paul, you're worthy. Paul, you're amazing. And so that's my encouragement. I'm just going to take a a minute or two in a minute just to leave some silence to let God speak to us. Because wherever you are in your journey in the language that's being used today, we all need to hear him speak to us again. And so you got this amazing fiend. She totally puts herself down, bashes herself down, disqualifies herself for whatever reason, all these different reasons, goes for like a little list. And he just doesn't go, he doesn't even refer to it. It's like, no, don't worry about those fiends. You're just going kind to of totally just whoosh. You know, those, um things you used to have as kids before there were computers. So you're going back if you of age. Well, you had those drawing things, what are they called? Sketch, extra sketches. Yeah, you know, and you kind of draw on there, and then you just got the thing going whoop. They cleared it all. For those who don't know, just look it up on Google. <laughs> For those underneath the age, I don't know, 20 might not have no idea what I'm talking about. But that's kind of what he does. He just goes. Sh- She's like writing on it, shame, I'm a failure, I've, I've, I've neglected my vineyard, you know, I haven't interacted with you. Maybe sometimes when we talk about your biblical literacy, you think, man, I'm still in Genesis. When people talk about prayers, like, well, you know, they pray, but, I, you know, if I just get a quiet word out to God, I'm, uh, just before I fall asleep or as I jump into the car, you know, fill in that gap, wherever you put on your, your feeling, and he just totally bypasses it and goes, you're beautiful. You're beautiful, you are amazing, you're fantastic, you're loved, you're desirable, you're desired. I'm just going to take a moment, you know, um, Spurgeon talked about it being holy ground, this is a holy ground moment. God, just come and speak. Just take a minute, just... um. You can do whatever you want really, but just close your eyes maybe if you find that easier. Wherever you are in your journey, you might even come here and think, I have no idea, I don't even follow Jesus. That's fine. He will speak to you. Just let him speak to you now. What is he saying to you? is the voice you need to hear this morning. God, come and speak over your children. Show them how much you love them. Let that truth go down. I know even as I'm saying this, some of you are just going through these lists. And he just wants to just wipe them. And I not. it's not downplaying some of those things. I'm not saying they're not, you know. But he's love. He's just looking. Let him just look at you deep into your eyes and say how much he loves you. Yes, God. I'm going to carry on, but... If your eyes are locked in on Jesus, keep them there, keep connected to him, so that's his response, so she talks about her neglected vineyard and this idea of her vineyard comes up a a few times and it's kind of what what, what we're going to do about that vineyard and um, I'm just going to give up. Those of you who know I like to ask questions. And so I didn't want to just talk to be hypothetical. And so this is something to kind of take away as, and it's taking some time to consider your garden, your vineyard, your soul. And it's just some questions to, maybe you can do it. If you're involved in a life group, it's a great thing to do, or with some friends, or even by yourself. Take some time just to, Contemplate, which just means to ponder about your vineyard. How's it doing? How's it becoming? I know I have a garden and it um, some bits are becoming nicer looking, and other bits are getting more overgrown. And I think that's a reflection of our lives as well. There's certain areas of our life where We're allowing God, the gardener, to do some stuff in other areas where we don't. Let's look after our garden. Yeah, don't get too bogged down, because there's a whole load of stuff there. That's always a risk of giving you a a sheet. But like the whole theme of Songs of Songs, all over, throughout this book, there's invitations again and again in different areas, invitations. And this is another invitation, what we're going to do about our garden. But going back to the, uh, the, the passage, the bride uses this phrase, you know, about, tell me you who I love, where you gaze your flocks and where do you rest? It's like, where are you? I want to be where you are. Katie and I have been married uh, 22 years. I got that right? And uh, we'll be 22 when we come up to September the 13th. I don't remember the date. And, and, you know, one of the things that we find hardest is when I, it's generally me that travels and it's like, I kind of miss knowing where she is. And I kind of miss knowing what she's up to. And, uh, you know, and I have some ideas in my head because like most people, we have certain routines. But it's that kind of disarm me. It's like, where are you? What are you up to? That's what he's kind of talking about. That's what she's designed. It's like when she says, where do you gaze your flocks? It's like, where are you, Jesus? Where are you? I want to be where you are. I want to be doing what you're doing. And again, I threw some questions down there because the answer to that looks differently in different ones of our lives. You know, in this church, we use this phrase and scattered this idea of any place, anywhere just trying to reflect Jesus you know I could pretty much call it anything you know I could call it in this context a, a scattered lover but you see in that the, the two aspects here you've got the aspect of intimacy she wants to be with him but she also wants to be with him doing what he's doing it's not just being with him but also being with him doing what he is doing and I mean that's very crucial again put, uh, I shouldn't say I put my pastor's hat on and Being around churches for a long time, I often find people or sometimes even churches fall into one or two. And I'm going to give the extremes. The church I was kind of brought up with was very much, um, how do I describe it? Maybe kind of work driven, just doing the things for God. You know, those great passages, go to all nations and preach good news. Uh, A lot of good scriptures, they were there, but there wasn't much conversation and discussion about intimacy not much conversations and discussions about just sitting in his presence and just being with him it was all to do about doing and then in more recent years and some of the circles I, I moved in there has been a lot about presence and just spending time in God's presence and that's great but I haven't seen a lot of working of that what I mean by that is if I said to Katie I love you I think you're amazing but I didn't get my hands dirty if I didn't wash the dishes if I didn't do things to make life work as a family then it would just be words and so I remember having this conversation with somebody a few weeks back at the church was talking about the whole idea of scattered servants and some things I found difficult with them. And I said, one of the reasons why it's so important to me because this is what it means to follow Jesus. is pressing into intimacy. is knowing him as my lover. And I'm trying to grow in that more than just a father, more than just a friend. But at the same time, at some point, that love needs to outwork itself. Even Jesus said, uh, he didn't come to lord it over. He came to serve other people. And if it doesn't, then all just soaking in his presence just becomes self-seeking and indulgent. If I was going to put it really bluntly because love must outwork itself. And so I share that because I see it so often. I often get asked to get involved in this and that and some of the things I'm involved with and I sometimes say, does it have these two aspects? Does it have the intimacy, the pursuit of God, the just gazing upon him, the, the sitting at his feet? Does it have, not only do I say I love him, but I know the things that he loves and the things that he wants to do, and I physically get off my backside and be- begin to just work with him in doing those stuff. So I'm taking my pastor's hat off again, but I just throw that out and encourage as a church to be both. That's what we mean, since by scattered sermon, is to press into the intimacy of God, and when we see His heart's desire for the world, we go and we are His hands, His feet, His mouth, to release and show that love to people so kind of coming into land and I want to finish again where I just touched on earlier coming back to this aspect where the bridegroom speaks to the bride and says you are beautiful he calls forth the reality that is there the reason I come back to it is because this is such a a high value Uh, in our church. In our church, we use this phrase sometimes, leading our communities into life. And this is ultimately what Jesus does. This is ultimately what the bridegroom there did. He looked beyond what he could see and he began to call forth what was the reality. She saw herself in all these negative terms. He saw her as she truly could be and was meant to be. And this story, you see how it worked uh, and lots of different places. One of them that just came to me and so I'm jumping into the New Testament here is a story in Luke chapter 5. It's an interesting story. There's a whole load of fishermen and they're fishing and they've been fishing for a whole all night. And it's just been just one of those days when just nothing seems to work. Hopefully some of you can relate to that. And uh, it's like, what has that day been about? And then Jesus steps in. And um, he says, cast the nets on the other side. And they catch this miraculous amount of fish. And Peter's there and he falls on his knees and he says, get away from me. I am an unclean man. You know, I'm a sinner. He's doing a bit like the bride did in this passage. He's like, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I'm not qualified. I mean, you've been so good to me, but I don't, I don't deserve it. And what did Jesus do? Jesus didn't go, yes, I know, but I will overlook it this time. Now he begins to call forth the destiny of Peter. He says, on this rock, you're going to be a rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, if you know the story, and this is the reason why I wanted to use this story to build upon it, that we don't get in the Songs of Solomon, is we see that Peter messed up a number of times on his journey. But Jesus kept calling forth his true identity and his true purpose and who he was. Because he knows he calls our future into our present. He can foresee from the start that we are a glorious bride. And that's why he can say that we're beautiful. That we are beautiful. Some of you I know like to do what I call declarations when you just speak truth over your life, maybe in the morning, maybe in the evening. This would be a good one to do. I am beautiful. I am worthy. I am loved by God. I tell you, if I did that more often, if we did that as a church more often, we would. Re- I think it would really be radically different. If, as you begin to catch an image of how God sees you, you begin to live that way. When somebody thinks, if somebody thinks they're not beautiful, and you begin to call them beautiful, it's amazing how they start maybe taking more attention to themselves. You know, checking their hair's cone before they go out the door or something. We live up often to the expectations that are spoken over us. That's why we need to hear the voice of God above every other voice that we hear in our life. We need to hear His voice saying that we're beautiful, that we're amazing. Rather than hearing some of the things that we've been saying maybe for years, maybe some of it's more recent stuff because we go through life and going, I'm not worthy, I'm not this, I'm not that. And he's going that you are beautiful. So they come in just to finish, I'm just going to jump right to Revelation. Because I feel that this whole Songs of Solomon is an invitation to intimacy, an invitation to love, an invitation to go on a a journey wherever you may be for some of you, you might feel like you kind of come around full circle it doesn't matter he's still his voice is saying beautiful one come run with me come be with me and there's a passage in um, Revelation beginning of Revelation the, there's various kind of messages to different churches and um, there's one particular church, Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a, an amazing church. Historically, it's one that would be seen as one of the most successful churches when it comes to performance. And we know from what we understand from church history that it had you know thousands of people, it had a great influence. It was definitely leading its uh, community into life, if we're using that phrase there. Uh, and, and in this passage, it talks about how they persevered, how they endured through persecution. But then it says this one thing, you have forsaken the love you had at first. Repent and do the things you did at first. And I say that to myself as I've been preparing for this, and I think it might be for some of you as well, that God is encouraging you to come back to your first love. Last week, if you were here, it's worth listening to the the youth were sharing, and one of the phrases they talked about a lot about was, a number of the youth, when they went away at this dreaming the impossible thing that Amy was just sharing as a notice, recommitted their lives to Jesus. It like, I said to you, Jesus, years ago, I wanted to follow you, but I've kind of made choices. I've neglected my garden. and if you want to use that kind of language, I'm coming back. I'm coming back to my first love. That's what repent means, is to change the way that you're doing things. And I want to do things that I did at first. That's a great advice for intimacy with God. Is a great advice for uh, any marriage. You know, sometimes when I feel like things between me and Katie are just getting a bit cold, I sometimes think, you know what? I sometimes realize sometimes, I've forgotten to do the things I used to do when we were first going out, or when we were first married. You know, God bless the person that invented um, sticky notes. You know, as soon as I just write little things on that and little messages or write a letter or bring some flowers. It's easy in any relationship, be it a physical one or be it a one in relation to God, just beginning just to do things. And it begins to lose that intimacy. And my call and challenge to you this morning to myself is, do we want to pursue your first love again? Pursue him. Run after him. Do those fiends. So I'm going to finish with a, a verse. This verse is normally used when people are talking about following Jesus for the first time, but which gets used that way. But this was written to a church. Um, so this was actually written for people who follow Jesus already. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. He's standing at the door and knocking. And we have an opportunity this morning to respond. In a minute, we're going to have time of ministry. It's just an opportunity. And whether you come to the front or where you stay in your seat, he's knocking. And this invitation It's not a one-off invitation. This is a day-by-day invitation. Will you invite me into your life, into your house? And he's standing there. What are we going to say? Now, for some of you, I've been talking about this, and it's you just maybe just exploring what it means to to follow Jesus. But maybe as I've been speaking, you're thinking, wow, it's way more than I thought. You know, people talk about Jesus being a savior and Jesus being in charge of my life, that's true. But this language is that's something I want. That's something I desire. So I'm just gonna, I'm gonna just go about enough time. And I'm just gonna say, maybe if everybody just closes their eyes for a minute. And um if there's anybody here this morning that says, I haven't said yes to Jesus, this this kind of lover, this bridegroom that's inviting you. And, and so I'm just gonna say a prayer, and this is who you are, this is where you are in your journey. That encourage you just to repeat it after me. God, I know that you love me and that you love me so much that you sent Jesus to live and to die for me. And I want to know you, Jesus. I want you to be in charge of my life. I want to give my yes to you. I want to spend the rest of my life seeking you, to be with you, and to do the things that you are doing. Amen. Just keep your eyes closed. And um, if that's you, uh, if that's where um, the first time you said that, maybe just put up your hand. I'm not going to spend long because time's nearly gone, but if that's you, and uh, just maybe put your hand or wave so it's clear mm-hmm. that's where you're at and for the rest of us he's knocking at the door he's inviting us how are we going to respond let's just um stand please